I'd like to thank you very much for uh, the invitation to come and talk this morning. While speaking in English, I will be talking with a European perspective rather than a Swedish. It's not particularly Cypri's job to comment on Swedish policy, although, of course, we do get involved in a lot of discussions about it. But I thought that, in any case, the most useful thing that I can do is to um, come with that sort of European view, and it will be for you to talk and discuss if you find anything that I say useful and interesting to think about what the particular Swedish take on that will be. So starting with the European perspective, the thing to remember is that this is November coming up in a year that ends with a nine, and we're therefore into a round number anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall nearly 30 years ago. Um, I think it's interesting to go back then and to think and to recall some of the discussions that there were going on, basically on the theme of, well, where now with NATO? What, what happens now? Across that couple of years, from 1989 to 1991, the strategic map in Europe changed dramatically, as we all know. And it was one of those periods when history moved very, very fast, and not only in Europe. So what was one supposed to do 30 years ago with NATO and with defense policy if one were a European uh, NATO member? I think one of the strong themes in the discussion, which I recall from that time, was a recognition of the risks if uh, defense policy was, as it was often called, renationalized. In other words, if the British, the French, and the German defense policies became, instead of alliance-oriented policies, became oriented purely to their own security. This wasn't a critique of non-alignment as such. It was just a recognition that the principle and the benefits of cooperation could be applied and could be gained through NATO, as well as through other international institutions that were being either constructed or changing at that time. Uh, the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe becoming the organization of security and cooperation, the changes that were going to be afoot in the European uh, communities becoming the European Union, and indeed changes that started to unfold in the UN as well. But that sort of insight nonetheless, nonetheless left the question, well, what is the role for NATO? And in the discussions that followed, my sense is that this question received no satisfactory answer. The Warsaw Pact members, apart from, um, well, with the exception of the Baltic states, apart from the USSR, were absorbed into NATO. An Eastern partnership uh, for NATO with uh, Russia was constructed. But still, the question lurked, against what threat are we now binding ourselves together? And if there is no threat, why are we binding ourselves together? And in this kind of period of self-questioning about the defense identity, the strategic identity of European members of NATO, there emerged the southern dimension, sometimes expressed as the threat from the South. And it's that particular phrase that I want to land on now. And when I say land on it, what I really mean is I want to jump on it with both feet and see if I can squash it 
because I think it is an appallingly bad and unproductive starting point for the discussion looking south and thinking about what we see to the south in terms of security issues. Parenthetically, when we say south, what do we mean? So I'm going to suggest that we mean actually essentially two things, thinking geographically. One is across the Mediterranean and to the Levant and eastwards from there, thus the Middle East and North Africa. When we say looking south, that's generally speaking what we mean, or at least part of it. But the second part of it is what you could call the larger region, because the Middle East and North Africa have to be understood not only as, if you like, an area with its own complex interlocking and profound problems, but also as a point of transit. So when you look south, you look not just to, for example, North Africa, but to the Sahel and to West Africa and the Atlantic coast beyond. When you look a bit southeast, you look not just to um, beyond the, the, the Mashriq, down to the Horn of Africa. When you look a little bit more eastwards, you look not just to the Levant and then to the Arabian Peninsula, but also to at least to Afghanistan. So one needs to understand both a closer region and a larger region is in, our, is in the frame of our thinking. And what do we see when we look south? Now, we can get into long discussion about this and maybe in question time, you'll want to challenge um, this view that I have, which I'm not going to, at the moment, um, buttress with very much evidence. I'm going to say that we mislead ourselves if we see something that we call a threat. Now, we don't see soldiers deploying, navies deploying, missiles pointed against us, the us in this part of the sentence being Europe. There is not that kind of a threat from the South. There are issues that arise which generate problems and things for us to challenge, to think about and address in security policy as in other fields, but not a threat as such. Instead, what we see might be something which is perhaps one could think more alarming. One might prefer to have an old-fashioned adversary and threat down there somewhere, rather than to look south and to perceive areas of extraordinary insecurity, instability, turmoil and war. A region of enormous geostrategic importance, not just for Europe, but globally. And I think I don't need to talk to this audience in a way to give you examples of why that is or how that is the case. It's not just a question of being oil rich, it's also a question of geography. So you could say it's geography as much as geology, which generates the geostrategic importance of the, of the, the Middle East and North Africa region. But it's also something else, it's something which sort of gets under our skin a bit, and we don't really like to acknowledge it very much in these kinds of conversations. Apart from the, apart from the 
the geography, apart from the oil, there's something else about the Middle East and North Africa which gets us hot under the collar. And it's not even the extent of the violence, because although, for example, the violence in the Syrian civil war has been absolutely horrendous by any scale, although the Iran-Iraq war was enormously destructive, one of the ten most lethal wars since the end of the Second World War. Actually, as a region, the, the Middle East and North Africa, it generates an awful lot of violence. But compared to genocide in Rwanda, or what happened in Biafra in the late 1960s, or Bangladesh in the early 1970s, or even the scale of warfare in, in Indochina, let alone Korea, the, the Middle East and North Africa is it's a place with a lot of misery and suffering, but there are many other areas of the world with a lot of misery and suffering that don't generate the same heat. And I would argue that it is not just the objective factors like uh, the oil and the geography which explain this. It's also the fact that the Middle East and North Africa, and especially that small part of the Middle East um, in Israel and Palestine, is a part of the sacred geography of three world religions and it, those religions are in different ways parts of the heritage of what three billion people out of the current world population something in that vicinity maybe more they're part of the heritage of those who are not religious as well as those who are religious and it's not even directly connected to relig religious faith it's just a strong feeling it's a part of our culture it gets under our skin what makes this worse is indeed the violence there. Middle East and North Africa have exper has experienced open warfare every single year since the end of the Second World War, with the exception, strangely, of 1947. There are more wars, more violence, more insecurity, and more risks now in the Middle East and North Africa than there ever have been. And combined with that, of course, there's the, um, the wider the larger region, the Sahel and the instability there, some of which is uh, caused by other factors, but part of which is an overflow from the, uh, from the Middle Eastern region. There is the Horn, which is also closely connected to it. And beyond that, there is Afghanistan. So both the Middle East, North Africa and the larger region are areas of, by current standards, an extraordinary degree of violence. And the death toll in this decade has rivaled the death toll in what was previously the worst decade for war deaths uh, in the Middle East, the 1980s. And there's a two-way influence between Middle East and North Africa and the neighboring regions, and there's the movement of people. And the movement of people, of course, is primarily people moving within that area, the larger region and Middle East and North Africa, secondarily moving into Turkey and tertiarily moving uh, as far as, as Europe itself. But we cannot stay disconnected from these events, even if we wanted to. Again, the we here is Europe, and we cannot deny the risks that they, they carry. Global geo geopolitics uh, have been, for a couple of centuries, imported into that region, maybe for longer, in fact. 
partisanship, taking sides in those conflicts, and the possibility that there will then be retaliation at source. It's not just hypothetical, that has happened. Terrorism in, in Europe, terrorist events in Europe related to the developments and the events in the Middle East. And the sense sometimes that although, of course, European states and the outside states are enormously influential, much more powerful, nonetheless, from time to time, you get the feeling that the dog in the Middle East is wagging the tail uh, of the outside powers, that we have become the, the weaker partner. So a question worth asking when we think in terms of part of the title of my remarks this morning, the foundations and the limits of security. A question worth asking is, is this a region of permanent instability? One could ask that both about the Middle East, North Africa and the larger region, Sahel Horn and up to Afghanistan. And I won't answer whether I think it's a question of whether it's a region of permanent instability. I don't carry crystal balls around with me and I don't know what the long-term future holds. But I do know that it is a region of profound instabilities. A slight digression. I was once asked by a um, relatively senior politician in the UK near the beginning of the Syrian civil war. He asked me about Lebanon. And he said, how far away do you think Lebanon, Lebanon is from exploding? And obviously he was thinking in terms of time. Was I going to answer it six months away or it's a year away or it's three years away? But instead I said, it's this far away, permanently. Right? Understanding Lebanon is to understand a country which is permanently walking on the edge of a volcano and requires good luck along with many other things that it doesn't slip down the side. And to some extent, one could feel that about the region as a whole, both for the positive and the negative, that it sometimes feels as if it wouldn't take that much for it to explode, and yet it wouldn't take that much for it to find a safe way out of the, or a relatively safe way out of the current dilemmas and crises. So it's a region of profound instabilities. And with among others, perhaps, I would suggest the following drivers of insecurity, and I'm not going to list them in order of priority. I think that the fact that the uh, more or less successful, the prosperous economies are based almost exclusively on resource rent is extremely important and weakening for the region as a whole. The lack of uh, adequate regional economic integration, there just isn't really, there's a surprisingly small amount of lateral trade between the countries of the region, is an another uh, aspect of, of weakness which creates a dependency on external factors. Governance is pretty appalling throughout the region, and it's appalling not only in the sense of a lack of democracy and a repression of human rights, it's also very often technically appalling, unable to manage dwindling water resources, unable to ensure that people are fed, unable to provide employment opportunities for a, a large population of uh, university educated youth. And that failure of governance through much of the region is in part connected to and in part caused by the failure 
of what you could call the post-colonial self-determination project. When countries emerged from the Ottoman Empire and then from French, British, or to a much lesser extent, uh, Italian um, hegemony in a period from the middle of the 19th century through to the middle of the 20th century, many of them had to, in a sense, create an identity. Are you Arab or Egyptian? Are you Arab or Tunisian? Are you Arab or Saudi? Saudi Arabia is even named after a family. It might feel very strange to say, I am both Arab and a member of a family that I'm not related to. That effort was not really made. In some countries, it didn't need to be made because oil wealth made it possible to avoid the task. In other countries, there were periods when it was made, but that it fell away. In Algeria and in Egypt, for example, where both of them shifted from a pan-Arab nationalism to a country nationalism, and yet both of them, uh, after a time, had basically run out of energy in that uh, self-determination, self-identification project. The pressures of demography are enormous. Population growth, which in some senses is a tribute to the development trajectory that has been taken in the region. Um, public health has improved, uh, mortality, um, the age of average mortality has increased. Population is growing, that means it's a very largely young population. And of course, like much of the world, this is increasingly urbanizing. Um, and an urban concentration of young, reasonably well-educated people with few job and economic prospects and without a clear sense of their attachment to a national project. This is a kind of, this is an interesting mix of ingredients for instability. There is everywhere the pressure of, of climate change. You cannot leave nature out of the story now when looking at a region such as the Middle East or the wider region, the Sahel, the Horn, Afghanistan. Climate change is a, is a pressure everywhere. And um, set this up, I won't go into it, but you know, again, you can follow up in questions if you like. The place where that pressure is at its most extreme at the moment, in my view, is actually in Iran. But climate and uh, climate change and nature are part of the story behind the Arab uprising in 2011, behind the Syrian civil war and behind the Yemen civil war before uh, Saudi Arabia's intervention. And then finally, there's the pressure of geopolitics. And as is often said, the world has seen in the last five or six years, the return of geopolitics. Uh, rivalries between the great powers of a very familiar kind. And these are played out. And we're seeing some of that being played out in our headlines um, about the decision over, um, Trump's decision over pulling out from northern Syria, the Kurds, the Turkish movement, and so on. Now, what I'm going to say is that in and from Europe, there is much that could be done to help address and manage, and perhaps in the most optimistic of lights, even fix these problems 
and manage their consequences. But the key word in that sentence is help. And the most important thing to understand, and I think that the sort of the temptation, which is actually neither a left nor a right nor a liberal nor a conservative temptation, it kind of goes across the board uh, in European politics and in generally in rich country politics, is to believe that there are problems there that we can fix. What are we going to do to fix that problem? We are not going to fix that problem. If that problem is to be fixed, if it is to be survived, it is to be managed, if its consequences are to be limited so that human security and the dignity of human lives can uh, be supported in a reasonable way, then the source of that change has to come from within the region. And outsiders can help, they cannot do more. So I could suggest to you that you judge for yourselves on the basis of what the Arab Spring showed, how likely it is that there will be that source for change uh, coming from inside the region. Could respond that events show that it's possible. Now, what has happened in Tunisia and Morocco perhaps gives a bit more source for optimism than what has happened in some other countries, but it's not probable and it's not soon. So as we look south, that suggests what the limits of our security are. If we agree that despite there being no threat from the south, there are issues in what I'm calling the south, which create challenges, including security challenges, terrorism being the most obvious one for us in Europe there are limits to the security that we can think we will achieve. But then what about the foundations of security? Well, without becoming too philosophical or abstract in thinking about this, you could look at those same drivers that I mentioned in relation to the Middle East and North Africa and see, I kind of check Europe against them. I mean, if you looked at the economic base, it's not resource rent, it's knowledge. That's a much stronger base. If you looked at regional economic integration, despite Brexit, it's much stronger. The lateral trading between the European countries is part of the security post-1945. State building, which is another name for the governance issues and um, post-colonial issues that I was talking about in the Middle East and North Africa. It's in some senses an incomplete project in some aspects in many parts of the continent, but it's broadly a done project. It's broadly speaking stable. Um, governance in terms of effectiveness is, I mean, it's always patchy as everybody knows, but if you take international perspective, it's far from poor, it's survivable. We've got progress, education, public services as a result of it. Um, probably the primary deficiency in governance in Europe is at the regional level, not at the national levels. In terms of demography, we have, I'm sorry to say this perhaps in, in this uh, audience, but it applies to me as well, we, have, we don't have the problem of the young population, it's the other way around. We have the problem of the aging uh, population. And to some degree, that is why immigration, including from the region we're talking about, has become uh, an explosive political issue uh, in, our, in our countries. Um, our economic need is part of, as well as our economic, our economic need for more labor, as well as our economic capacities, are part of what acts as a magnet, pulling people here. But those who were here already 
sometimes don't like that logic. The challenge of nature and of climate change, that's a challenge everywhere, but the wealth that we have makes adaptation more straightforward than in some other places. And there is a growing consciousness about the need to decarbonize economies. And then the, the toxic nature of geopolitics today is affecting us and our region um, to perhaps not such an intense degree, but it is affecting us as well as the Middle East. So seen in this light, looking south, What could one do? Well, it, it is to be addressing those drivers. It is to be finding ways to, to address those drivers. Perhaps the hardest ones to address are the geopolitics, the governance, and the economics. And that sounds like, well, then it's a mess, isn't it? If we can't address those three, or at least they are the hardest ones to. But there are perhaps ways in there through nature and the climate change. There are perhaps ways in there through supporting regional economic integration. There are perhaps ways in there through governance and supporting um, the exploration of regional frameworks and of their links to their global governance. I don't think there is any reason for complacency about this. One of the things which I've done in my um, strange career is to, to do political atlases, using geography to, do, to show political problems. And one atlas I did was about the Middle East. And it's had three editions called The State of the Middle East. And I was talking one time with a publisher about this, about this atlas project, just at a time when I was changing jobs, when I moved from Norway to London. And I said, you know, while I'm settling into my job in London, I really can't take on a project like this for, you know, at, at least a year, maybe a year and a half. And I was talking on the phone, the voice came down the line, very reassuring in its own way. It said, don't worry, Dan, the Middle East and its problems are not going to go away. 